things going and it's pretty cool i enjoy seeing that each week too all right well today as i mentioned we're going to be talking about uh, the battle the conquest of the promised land as we saw there and i'd like to pray for us as we begin father as we come before you today thank you again for your word for the power that it has for the truth that it shows us and for these examples that we can learn from Things that happened in the past that were written down for our benefit, the scripture says, so that we might learn to fear you and honor you and obey you. And Father, would you use your word that way in our life today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever faced a challenge in your life that caused you great fear? What did you do? How did you handle it? Or maybe you are facing a challenge like that right now. A major medical condition, loss of a spouse, maybe it's the loss of your job, or maybe it's a major move or transition that you're about to make. What will you do? How will you respond? I want you to think back in history to June 5th, 1944 the day before the Allies were to storm the beaches of Normandy. General George S. Patton gave a speech to the Third Army that left no room for failure. He said, I don't want to get any messages saying that I am holding my position. We are not holding. We are advancing constantly, and we are not interested in holding on to anything. Our basic plan of operation is to advance and to keep on advancing regardless of whether or not we have to go over, under, or through the enemy. Can you imagine the fear that must have been racing through the hearts of those men as they considered what was about to happen that next day? More than 160,000 men were involved in the D-Day operation. 5,000 ships, 13,000 aircraft. And that next day, more than 9,000 would be killed or wounded in the battle. Eisenhower also had said to them that we will accept nothing less than full victory. Well, when I think about the Israelites poised on the edge of the promised land, the Israelites faced a similar overwhelming military challenge. And there was no room for failure. Defeat is not an option. The time had come for them to enter the promised land, and that's what the book of Joshua is about. It records the conquest of the land. It's a story of how God brought them into this land and gave them victory over the Canaanites. Now today we're going to look at this particular book in more of a thematic way. I'm not going to go through the chapters kind of in the order, starting at chapter 1, going through the book. But instead, I want to highlight things in a thematic way to bring out what was going on here. And what we see in the book of Joshua is that before they could even enter the land, there were three obstacles that they needed to overcome. They needed to cross the Jordan River. They needed to consecrate themselves to the Lord in this matter of circumcision. And they needed to conquer their fears before they would take the cities that were in front of them. Now let's look at each one of those. In terms of crossing the Jordan River, we are told in chapter 3 that the time that they came to the Jordan River, it was flood season. 
Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, the scripture says, Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Now think about that. I mean, here you are, 40 years you've been wandering in the wilderness. Isn't it curious that God would pick this particular time to say, now's the time to cross the Jordan into the promised land? I mean, wouldn't you have thought maybe he could have picked it during the dry season when the river wasn't quite so deep and swift and wide? And maybe they wondered, Joshua, are you sure that you heard God correctly? I mean, really? Now's the time that he wants us to cross the Jordan River. How do you move 600,000 men and their families across a swift river without boats or bridges? Numbers 26, verse 51, was the uh, total of the second census that was taken in Israel, said that there were 600,730 men over the age of 20 ready to go into battle. How do you move that many troops, if you will, across the river? The second obstacle they needed to overcome was this matter of consecration to the Lord and the rite of circumcision. We are told in Joshua 5 that all the men born in the desert during their wandering, that time in the wilderness, they had never been circumcised. Why? We are not told why that happened. Circumcision, though, was a sign of the covenant. And before they could take possession of the land, God said that all the men of Israel needed to be circumcised. And again, I could see, you know, if you're there, you're thinking, really? I mean, now? I mean, can you imagine Eisenhower bringing this up before D-Day and saying, oh, by the way, men, there's one more thing we need to take care of uh, before we go into battle? This is not exactly the kind of procedure that you would normally do on an army before it is about to engage in battle. And we are told that, you know, this is not going to be done with surgical scalpels, but with flint knives. A very painful, difficult procedure. And then the third obstacle they needed to overcome was their own fear. They needed to conquer their fears. They had heard the reports about Canaan, They had been told that there were giants in the land. I don't know if that means that they all were like Goliath, but they were big and they were strong. And they had walled cities. And if you think about walled cities in that day and the kind of defenses that they had, they were very effective. And a day when there were not cannons or airplanes or things like that, walled cities could be very strong in terms of defense. And the normal way that you conquered a city that had a wall around it was to lay siege to it. You surrounded them until they either starved to death or surrendered, or you built some kind of siege ramp to go up against it, and then you would try to take the city in that way. And timing there was also important. And one of the things that we see here concerning Jericho, again, is that it was the harvest season. And they had just brought in their fresh supplies of grain and food. Remember Rahab, when the two spies come to her, she hides them on the roof of her house in the bundles of flax that are up there. Or this note that I read about the Jordan River says that the Jordan floods its bank all during the harvest. 
The harvest had just taken place. And again, this would be like a curious time to invade. Wouldn't you have gone in and laid siege to these cities, you know, when they uh, didn't have their grain in stock and well supplied? The Canaanites were not going to give up easily. They were not going to give up their land without a fight. And people would die in the battles on both sides. From a lower story perspective, this is crazy. The timing seems awful. Couldn't be worse from a military point of view. But God's timing is not our timing, is it? In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, we read, God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why does God do it this way? Why does he do it in a way that just looks impossible? Well, it is so that everyone will know that God did it. That these things happen by the hand of God, and he gets the glory. And so God tells Joshua and the people that there are three things that they need to do in order to be successful. He tells them, first of all, that they are to be a people of the book. And we see that in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He said to Joshua, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. And do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will be prosperous and successful. How does God answer their fears? He comes to Joshua, he commands him to be strong and courageous, and he gives them this promise that I will be with you. Joshua, I will be with you, and I am going before you into battle. In fact, he will make that very clear when he directs them to lead the army with the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant, when the priests are carrying it and they touch the edge of the waters, the waters of the Jordan will part so they can cross through on dry ground. When they go into battle around the city of Jericho, it's the Ark of the Covenant that leads them. And the Ark of the Covenant was not some weapon of mass destruction like Indiana Jones tried to make it out to be or some of the other stories and movies will try to do. No, it was the presence of God in their midst that was leading them into battle. And he would be the one who would give them the victory. Now when God says that if you obey everything that I command you, then you will be prosperous and successful, what does that mean? What does God mean when he says that you will be prosperous or successful? Well, success here means that you will accomplish all that God intends. The world has a different view of success. You know, the world tends to think of success in terms of fame and fortune. You know, that you'll uh, be well known or that you'll get a lot of money or all these kind of things. But that's not what God is saying here. He is saying that you will fulfill the mission that I have given to you. I mean, that's God's desire for us, too, in terms of blessing on our life or guiding us or giving us success. God will enable us to accomplish His purposes in our life. 
That's why it's important that we walk to Him or that we walk with Him and that we get our assignments from the Lord. God, what is it that You want me to do? How do You want me to serve You? Or how do You want me to use the gifts that You have given to me? And God will make that clear as we walk with Him. And He will use us for His honor and glory too. And what we see here was that when Israel obeyed God's instructions... For example, when they obeyed the instructions to march around Jericho and give a great shout, Jericho was defeated and the walls did come tumbling down. Do you know that the archaeological evidence supports that claim as well? The archaeologists who have done the work at Jericho, and this goes back over many years, uh, said that it, it looked like a great earthquake shook the city and the walls did indeed tumble out. They were not battered down by a battering ram going in, but they tumbled out in such a way that the rubble formed a siege ramp that everyone could run straight up into the city in attacking it. And not only that, but in the ruins of the city, there was found this layer of ash. As the whole city was put under a ban, it was devoted to the Lord. Everything there was to be given to him. They were not to take the spoils of war for themselves in the city of Jericho. And what the archaeological experts found was that here was this layer of ash in the city, and they also found evidence of the harvest. There were stores, supplies of grain that were still there untouched. And that is unusual. I mean, normally a conquering army, when it came in, would, you know, take all the supplies to feed its own army or take all the treasure that was there for themselves. And here they found the evidence that those things were left in place. But when Israel disobeyed God, as when Achan took some of the gold and the silver that he found and a beautiful robe and he hid it in his tent, Israel was defeated in battle and 36 men died when they went up against this small city of Ai. Achan's sin caused the whole army of God to be routed. One man's sin can affect the whole community. One man's sin can affect the whole church. And God saw that, and he knew exactly what was going on. It's interesting to me that Achan's name in Hebrew means disaster. And that's exactly what happened. Achan's sin was a disaster. And it caused the Israelites to question themselves and say, you know, what just happened here? I mean, here we saw God defeat Jericho. Why is it that we could not take this much smaller city of Ai? It was because of the disobedience of this one man. So what was God teaching them? And what is he teaching us by these kind of examples? He is telling us that obedience leads to victory and disobedience brings defeat. Obedience, when we walk with God, when we trust Him and step out in faith, is the way that we experience victory in our own life. And when we disobey and we step away or outside of the will of God and go our own way, it leads to defeat and it leads to disaster. Well, after that loss, Joshua would read the entire book of the law to the people. It said in Joshua chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, 
that afterward Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. It's like saying, okay, to that army, okay, guys, we're going to start again. Now listen, this is what God has said. This is what we're going to do. It is a reminder to us that the word of God must be central in our life as well. And secondly, God says that we need to be a people of prayer. God said to the Israelites that before you go into battle, I want you to talk to me first. Just in the same way as he would say to us, you know, before you start your day, before you go to work, before you go to school, I want you to talk to me. And I want you to begin your day in prayer, in conversation, in fellowship with me. And when we look at the book of Joshua, when Israel did that, when they sought the Lord for guidance, when they humbled themselves or they bowed before Him and asked for His direction, God answered. He gave them the direction that they needed. But when they did not consult the Lord, they were deceived. Do you remember in your reading the story about the Gibeonites who came? It's in Joshua chapter 9. And the Gibeonites, it was a big city in the land of Canaan. Uh, But they came up with this elaborate ruse that they were going to make it look like they were a long ways away in a whole different part of the Middle East, you know. And that they had ridden many, many miles and see how their garments are worn out and their sandals are bad and the food they have is moldy and and all of this. And they made it look like um, they were not in the land of Canaan. And they came hoping to make peace with the Israelites. And in Joshua 9, verse 14... It said, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Here God had given the instructions, I want you to go in and I want you to take the land and take it completely. And they had won some victories, and so they thought, well, you know, hey, this is going pretty well, and here come the Gibeonites. And rather than praying about it and asking the Lord for direction, they made their own decision, and they were deceived. Have you ever done that? Have you ever made a decision without consulting the Lord? How did it turn out for you? Had you ever gone ahead on your own plan knowing it's not what God wanted you to do and you thought, I'm just going to do this anyway? How did that go? Not so well, I imagine. And what we see here, again, is the importance of coming before the Lord and seeking His wisdom, personally, as a church, in our business, wherever it may be. I was reading uh, Randy Frazee told about their church uh, in San Antonio where they have this desire to reach their city for Christ. And a number of years ago, the early part of this last decade, the early 2000s, um, they had a plan to build and enlarge their sanctuary. They were going to build a bigger campus to reach more people for Christ. And they had this building proposal that they brought to the congregation. They asked them to make pledges toward that commitments. And when they finished their capital fund drive, 
And they came up $5 million short of what they needed. And what do we do? And the elders went before the Lord and they prayed about it and they asked God, what do you want us to do? And they felt like God was saying to them, wait, wait. And so they chose not to go forward with the building project. They explained it to the congregation. I mean, and there were some questions and people wondering, you know, because sometimes, you know, you'll find where churches will say, no, we need to step out in faith and we're going to, you know, just trust God to provide that additional $5 million or whatever. And then after their decision came the recession in 2008 and this whole economic downturn. And because they waited on the Lord, they were free of debt and they were able to help more of their people and people in their community who were in need. Not only that, but their strategy changed in how they thought about reaching San Antonio. And instead of building one larger campus, they chose instead to establish smaller satellite venues all around San Antonio. And God blessed that strategy. Now, did the elders know that the recession was coming when they made that decision to wait? They didn't. If they did, that would be a little scary too, you know. Nobody knows what the future is going to bring on those things. They were just trusting God's leading as they prayed. And God used that decision to bless their ministry, and their ministry was stronger as a result of listening to Him. You know, when we meet together, whether it's in a board meeting or one of the ministry teams that you may be on, or when we meet as a congregation, you know, prayer is not just a formal thing that we do because, oh, we ought to pray. No, it's because Jesus is the head of the church. And when we come together, we pray and we honestly want Him to lead us and guide us in every area of our ministry. And sometimes the answer is to, you know, charge and take this city, even though it may seem kind of crazy in how God is directing. And other times the answer is wait, wait. And for us, it's that walk of faith. We don't want to run ahead of the Lord. We don't want to lag behind Him, but we want to walk in step with God. And to do that, we need to be a people who pray. And thirdly, we need to be a people who identify with God. And we see that in Joshua chapter 5 in this story about circumcision. Again, God commanded all of the males in Israel to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And they obeyed God. And they did that at Gilgal. And it said that this reproach was rolled away, this uh, disobedience, if you will. They had not done that in the 38 years that they had wandered in the wilderness. And now they came and they took care of things as a sign that they were putting God first in their life. Not only that, but Joshua himself, as the leader of the people, needed to be fully committed to the Lord. And so in in Joshua chapter 5, and this isn't in the chapter on the story that was written, but I think it's very significant. And I'm going to read it for you. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. 
And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that bring to mind another encounter? You think of Moses when he saw the burning bush in the wilderness and he went near to see what this strange sight was and he heard the voice of God saying, Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Joshua had a different encounter, but we believe this was with the second person of the Trinity. But the angel of the Lord, as he is called sometimes, or this second person of the Trinity is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. And he came to Joshua as commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua needed to take off his sandals and bow before him in reverence. In our life, in any battle that we face, the very best place to start is on our knees before the Lord. And to say, Jesus, what do you have to say to me, your servant? And even Rahab, this woman who was a prostitute living in Jericho, chose to be identified with the people of God. They had heard the reports and she tells the spies this encouraging word that the hearts of the people here are melting in fear because of you. We heard what your God did when he parted the waters of the Red Sea. We know that your God is God over all the earth. And Rahab chose to identify with the people of God. What's remarkable about Rahab is she not only will become part of the covenant community, but she also becomes part of the line of Christ, one of the ancestors of Jesus. And Rahab is held up as an example in the New Testament of one who was saved by grace through faith. Not because of what she did, but because of her faith in God. And her deeds really demonstrated her faith when she both hid the spies, helped them to escape, and then when they had talked about what will be the sign that we will know where to get you and to spare your life, they gave her this scarlet cord that was to be put in the window. The scarlet cord, a symbol of the blood of Christ that would cover her too. And she was saved by faith. What do we learn from all of this again? Well, we learn that victory comes after consecration. This isn't a normal military strategy, but this isn't a normal military operation. This is God leading His people into spiritual battle. And to do that, we need to be right with Him before anything else. Another way to say it is that the key to victory was not in superior weapons or numbers, but in obedience to God. The key to victory in our life is not in superior weapons or greater wealth or more stuff. It is in obedience to the living God. And the third thing we see in the book of Joshua is then uh, the battles begin and the land is taken and the book of Joshua goes through different battles and things that took place. 
But what I want you to see is how God performed numerous miracles on their behalf. There were just way too many coincidences, if you will, in terms of what God was doing here. You had it starting, first of all, with the Jordan River when the Ark of the Covenant went into the waters and the waters were dammed up and cut off so that they could cross the Jordan River. And then when they came to Jericho, God is the one who caused the walls of Jericho to collapse. They didn't need to beat them down or storm the gates. They needed to obey God and walk around the city and sound the trumpet and give a great shout and the walls came down. It was God who caused the sun to stand still in the battle at Gibeon when Joshua prayed that God would extend that day. And that is one of those passages that you just kind of shake your head and you go, this is amazing what God did on their behalf so that they could rout their enemies. We see God's presence when they defeated the five kings in the southern campaign and the 14 kings in the northern campaign. And then God's direction when they divided the land among the tribes of Israel in chapters 13 through 22. And one other note that to me is just awesome as well is that in chapter 5, after they uh, performed this rite of circumcision, at that place they also celebrated Passover in the land for the very first time. And they came and they remembered Passover and what God had done with the Passover lamb. And they celebrated this great feast. And the scripture says in chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, that they ate of the produce of the land for the very first time. They're in Canaan. They eat of the produce of the land. On the 14th evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And listen to this. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain, and the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Is that a coincidence? Not at all. This miraculous provision of bread in the wilderness that had been there all the way along to sustain them now ended because it was no longer needed. God was bringing them into this land flowing with milk and honey and they would have food for all to eat. And the manna stopped. Well, going on, God commanded the Israelites here to totally destroy the nations before them. Men, women, and children. Now that's a hard thing for us to read. I know that that's a question mark for many people when they read the Old Testament and they go, why? You know, if that were happening today, we would call it genocide. In fact, there have been places where we have seen these battles or wars where people have tried to eradicate another people group. And from our lower story perspective, that seems really hard and we have questions. But from the upper story perspective of what God was doing, it makes sense. You see, the Lord is the judge of all the earth, and only He knows the hearts of men and women and children. And one day we will all stand before Him. In 600 years prior to this action, God had told Abraham what would happen. 
In Genesis 15, 16, he talked about how his descendants would go into Egypt. They would live there for 400 years before God would bring them out into the promised land. And so you had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then you had this period of 400 years. And then comes the Exodus event and now they're moving into the promised land. In essence, God gave them 600 years to repent. He had told Abraham that the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And their sin was great. The sin of the Amorites was that they practiced detestable idolatry, which included using prostitutes in worship, and they sacrificed their own children in the fire in worship burning of their own children in the fire. But I look at that and I also wonder about today. And I wonder about America and I wonder about these times when nations run their course of history and what will happen. Are we moving away from God or toward God? Step by step, it seems that we have moved away from God And God is giving us over to our own sin in many different areas. And I look at the sin of the Amorites of idolatry and sexual immorality and the sacrificing of children. And I think about our country and I wonder how long we have. And I wonder what will happen. Will God spare us and will we be revived and experience that great turning to God once again? That's my prayer. But what I see in the course of history and nations is that there comes a time when God says, enough. And that nation is moved from the scene. Even more importantly, in terms of what God was doing here, God wanted to use Israel to make himself known among the nations. And to do that, they needed to be a holy people set apart to follow him. And God knew that if the Canaanites were left in the land and they intermarried with them, they would turn their hearts astray. And that's exactly what happened. The land was largely taken. Some Canaanites remained. And over time, the hearts of the Israelites turned astray to worship Baal and Asherah and other false gods. So what do we learn from this chapter of the story? We learn that the key to victory over sin is trusting God and walking in obedience. And to experience greater victory and growth in our walk with God, we need to be a people of the Word, a people of prayer, and a people who openly identify with God. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua will give his challenge just as Moses has done. And he will say to the people, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can put that up as well. And then I think also the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When he issued his challenge to all of us as well and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What will we choose? Whom will we serve? Who will we follow? Let's pray. God, you are an awesome God who has demonstrated your power time and time again in the battles in the past and bringing Israel into the promised land, but even today 
and the miracles you work on behalf of your church and the advance of the gospel around the world as we hear what you are doing and other parts where the gospel is going into new regions and new people groups. And God, we pray that you would show your power and demonstrate that you alone are Lord over heaven and earth. And Father, I pray that we would, in our heart, make that choice to follow you fully, to seek you in all our decisions, to be a people who love your word, who put it into practice in our life, and who identify with you as our Savior and Lord. Amen.